noticed some news coming from Kentucky. Uh, and it wasn't the Kentucky Derby this time. It was a it was a revival going on at Asbury College. Anybody been to Asbury? Anyone? I got lost there once. Um, we were supposed to be visiting a church in Frankfort, Kentucky. My wife and I and our family are missionaries. And, uh, and we've been told that, uh, that we were given the address of someone who's gonna put us up for the night, uh, but they got the zip code wrong. And so we, were, we ended up on the campus of Asbury College and Asbury Seminary, uh, randomly trying to find our way and figure out where we were supposed to be. And finally we figured out that we were supposed to be about 40 miles away in Versailles, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other issue. Anyway, we, um, it, it's a beautiful campus, and, and the, the news that was coming out a few weeks ago was that Revival had broken out on the campus of Asbury, Asbury College, had moved to the seminary, and then had begun to take off in other university campuses around North America. And uh, I'll be honest, there, there were a lot of people that tried to be very cynical about it, but it was really hard to be cynical because it seemed like a real fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People were confessing their sins. They were abasing themselves in the presence of the Lord and uh, without much encouragement really from the faculty or the staff of these colleges, the students themselves felt impelled by the Holy Spirit to turn their lives back over to him and to make a difference in the lives of others. And as an Anglican priest watching from far away, I had to say, amen. This is amazing. This is, this is exactly what we need. It may not be everything that we as a church need, but it's everything that we need. And it's funny because as we look at those kinds of revivals and as those of us that are in a more liturgical tradition encounter uh, those that are a little bit more solidly in North American evangelicalism, one of the questions that comes up is, well, you know, in, in many of these other churches that I've been to, there's often an altar call. You guys heard of this, right? An altar call where someone at the end of the service uh, maybe as the piano starting to play a little bit of music, right? Starting to feel, feel really uh, moved by the sermon. Uh, there's an altar call to come up to the front of the church and to give your life to Christ. That is, an invitation is extended. And this may happen in some churches every Sunday. And every Sunday there's an altar call at the end of the sermon. In others, it may be a special thing for only the revival. But it's become part and parcel of what it means to be a North American evangelical in some quarters. And I've had people ask, well, why don't we do this? And sometimes I've, I've even felt my, myself asking, well, why don't we do this? And the answer that I think begins to come up is, well, we do. We always have. We always have extended an invitation for people to come to Jesus. The thing is, in our evangelical and yet more old school Protestant tradition, what we call the Anglican tradition, and I think this is holds out in other traditions from that era as well, the Presbyterian or the Lutheran or other denominations along those lines, is that we do extend that call to come to the altar, that call to come to Jesus, this invitation to come and to meet with him and to turn your life over to Christ. We do that regularly, but we associate it with a feast. With the feast these days, normally, of the Lord's Supper, what is sometimes called Holy Communion or the Holy Eucharist. But one of the things that I would point out is that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper today, so I have a little bit of time to talk to you about, about what's going on in the Lord's Supper. But we say, you who earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead the new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith. 
It is an invitation to come to Jesus when we come and we meet around that table. And we understand that we are to do so frequently. But the scripture doesn't tell us how frequently, but it is an important thing for us, I think, to understand that our character as Christians, who we are, and I don't mean our subject, I don't mean the character, me, my character as a human being, but I mean the character of what it means to be a Christian, means to be a people who have been invited to the feast of God and who have said, yes, I am going to accept the invitation and come to that feast. And we see this in our reading today. Today we read from Matthew chapter 22. Um, you, can, you can follow along in a Bible. I understand Roger has passed out some ESV Bibles that you can bring with you. You can also scan a QR code in your bulletin. You can also look at a little translation that I did if you want to follow along in that, but you don't have to. Um, nevertheless, on page two of that little handout, you're also going to see the outline that I'm mostly going to be following. And so that may be helpful for you as well. But in our reading, Jesus gives a parable it is a parable about a feast to which many people have been invited. Now, this is a parable which follows another which is very similar. And Trevor gave a message last week about the parable of the tenants. And Jesus is locked into a kind of uh, battle royale with the Pharisees and the chief priests. He is in a real tug of war with them about the nature of his ministry and its relationship to all of Old Testament history and to what is coming in terms of the kingship and the kingdom of Israel all for the future. Jesus has just, for instance, told the chief priests and the Pharisees that judgment is coming on the house of Israel because they are about to reject the cornerstone, the rock of offense, the one who has come to the vineyard to claim it for his father. Well, in this parable, he again retells the history of Israel. He retells the history of God's people and their relationship to the Lord. And he does so in a way that not only brings judgment, but also brings an invitation. There's an invitation that comes with judgment. But nevertheless, he creates a picture of a feast, drawing on Old Testament imagery from Isaiah chapter 25. For instance, the Lord inviting all the nations of the world to come and to enjoy a feast on Mount Zion. This feast to which all people have been invited, a feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation would put it. And so there's this historical narrative that Jesus lays out in a kind of, if not allegory, at least a parable. A parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And as we look back on how the church has interpreted this, on the one hand, we have looked at this and we've said, yes, on the one hand, this is a telling of the history of Israel, of Jesus' coming to his people and being rejected by them, and yet, nevertheless, establishing his kingdom in the midst of his enemies. On the other hand, it is a parable that teaches us something about what is to come in that future day, on that marriage supper of the Lamb to which all have been invited. And when he comes again in glory, we will sit down and we will feast with him, much more so than the elders of Israel did when they sat down on Mount Sinai and they feasted with the Lord. But we have also understood this to be a very practical, very tangible invitation to a real feast that occurs regularly here in our midst. And in all three of those interpretations, we have said the point is to come to Jesus. So how to sum it all up? The kingdom is a feast. 
When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it is a feast, and you are invited to come. Now the question then becomes, well, why wouldn't someone want to come? If the Lord God of the universe, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, the Lord who has given himself in love to us, not only day after day after day, but especially there as he sent his son Jesus to death on a cross on our behalf, why wouldn't everyone come? The interesting word that comes up in our passage today is found there in verse 5. They paid him no attention. They ignored him. The king who was inviting everyone to this feast. And this is a deliberate ignoring. They are aware of the invitation. They are aware of what it means, and yet they don't want to come. And I would suggest today that there is something similar that goes on. One of the temptations that we have, whether we are believers or not yet believers, the temptation is to hear the call and to ignore it in one way or another. And there are many ways of ignoring it, as we're going to discover as we go through the passage today. And that's why I have listed out three points in the sermon today, three things that I don't want us to ignore when we're talking about the invitation to the feast, the invitation, and reiterated, in the invitation to come to the table. The first that I'd like to discuss today is don't ignore the host. I'm not talking about the little host of bread, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the host of the feast. And here we can begin in verse 1 and begin to look at the setup that Jesus is giving for this parable. The setup that he has put together. There is a king, there is a man who is a king, as, as, uh, as the Greek would have it, and he has arranged a wedding feast for his son. He has made it, he has put it together, and what has he done? He has put, everything is arranged, the only thing that he hasn't done is he hasn't sent out the final call for the invitees. And what happens? He finally issues that invitation. Now, this is a political statement on his behalf. Let me just make this clear. When a king invites someone to the wedding of his firstborn son, question of the legitimacy of his jurisdiction to have that wedding for his son and to invite the wedding guests. Well, what does that mean? That means that to intentionally refuse to come to the wedding of the king is what? It is tantamount to denying the legitimacy of the king's reign and jurisdiction in that particular area. Now, these are not excuses of, you know, I have smallpox or I have COVID or whatever it is that, you know, would disqualify you from going to a wedding today. This is not, it's too far to travel, although even that might have been offensive. The excuses that are eventually given are what? They're the political equivalent of, I have to wash my hair, I'm sorry. Right? He says, but I have to go till my field. I have a business to go to. The invitation is refused. And there's a little back and forth here in the passage, isn't there, right? The meaning of the royal threat then begins to come across. Their blunt reply, which is simply, they didn't want to go, turns into, you have to come. I have put everything together. I have prepared everything for you. You need to come. Come to the feast. In other words, this is, we sometimes talk in geopolitics about a soft coup. This is a soft insurrection. 
without necessarily gathering their armies immediately. What they are doing is they are rejecting the authority and the legitimacy of the king. Which then leads to what? Suddenly, and this to modern ears can seem a little bit brutal, but suddenly it says, well, having heard the message and having killed the messengers, the king responds by sending forth his armies, killing them, and burning down their city. Now, and this seems a little bit rough, and it's going to get rough. I say it's going to get rough because Jesus' audience would not have missed the fact that in this parable, the king is whom? Who are those aristocratic landlords who have been the primary invitees to the feast? It would have been those who had their land inheritance has been invited to come to this feast to be set on Mount Sinai, or not on Mount Sinai, on Mount Zion. This feast of coming to the Lord to worship him and to adore him, to come to the wedding of his son, his son. Who is now speaking to them, and they are present in their midst, and they are servants whom the king would have sent out to invite them in the first place, and who ended up dead. And what did they do to this son himself, as was suggested in the previous parable? They have him killed on a cross, lifted up before all men in shame and ignominy. And many interpreters look at the destruction of their city, the setting fire of their city, as referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And Jesus himself is quick to point out that this destruction that he prophesied would come on the city was coming because of the way that they had treated us. But you have to give these people credit for one thing. And it's something that I think we often have missed ourselves. One way in which, even if they acted evilly, they were more righteous than we are, often are. And that is that they recognized the host. They recognized the implication of who the host of the feast was. Because the invitation's imperative force derives from the host. who is doing the inviting, sending that invitation, then I am obligated and obliged to come, to present myself, and to join in the feast. Not simply, not simply to show up and pay my respects and then sneak out the back like I often like to do at weddings. I know, I like to go to bed early sometimes. But to come and to feast and to dance and to drink and to enjoy yourself and to make merry before the Lord. That is what the Eucharist is as well. We hear God calling to come to his kingdom, to come to the feast. And I think many times when we hear that invitation, it is difficult for us to perceive behind the invitation the one who is inviting, the host of the feast, the party master himself, the Lord God of the universe. But I think it should be made even more tangible when it is issued from this table. On the one hand, it is more fraternal. One of the great things, I think, about the way that we often set up our church is that rather than having the pulpit in the center like, a, like, a, like an auditorium where we expect to hear a lecture, we have a table here because we've been invited into God's house, into his living room, to join him at his table. Whether we're 
actually eating right now or whether we're just having a conversation. We're at his table in his house. And he is the one, having invited us, expects us to come and to present ourselves. And I'm not just talking about coming to church and coming to take communion, although I think that's an important part of it, but coming and presenting yourself, your soul and your body, everything that you are and everything that you have before the Lord, because it is he who is extending this invitation to you, and it is he who expects you to present yourself. We must come because he is expecting to meet us in his kingdom and he is expecting to meet us at his table so that's the first thing the second thing that i don't want us to ignore is the occasion now we're going to skip the middle part of the parable here and we're going to go to the end imagine with me that the wedding has filled up with with uh with wedding guests the king himself, he finally comes. There is this sense of what we would call in theological language, parousia, the appearance, the coming of the king in glory. Well, he comes to survey his guests and to see how they are and to make sure that they are enjoying themselves. He comes not just to judge or to critique them. I mean, we're not talking about somebody who's coming in any kind of petty way. He wants to make sure that everyone is well and having a good time. But he finds a guest who what? He doesn't have what? A wedding garment. Now, I think many of us would say, well, but this poor guy probably just couldn't afford it. Well, that often wasn't the case in these times. Oftentimes, if you couldn't afford it, the person who invited you to the wedding would supply you with the wedding outfit that you needed. That is, if uh, in Spanish we would say, el que invita, paga. When you, when you go out to eat with somebody, if you were the one that invited the other person, it's your job to pay. Well, there's something similar here. If you were invited to the wedding, then the host is going to do everything possible to make sure that you could attend the wedding. But he doesn't have the wedding garment. And he says, friend, who let you in here? How did you get in here? And he has nothing to say. And he gets thrown out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, something which Matthew always uses to refer to, not just to the fact that people were outside of the party upset that they couldn't get in, but he's referring to the ultimate day of judgment. He's referring to what we would colloquially refer to as hell. So this is kind of a big deal. And that leads us to stress a lot of it about what is the wedding garment? What is the wedding garment? Why, you know, for those of us who want to show up to this feast, to the kingdom, what is it that I need to robe myself in what is, how is this functioning in the allegory? And one of the things that I think we often ask ourselves is, is this faith or is this works? Is this me just believing in Jesus and coming to him and saying, yes, Lord, I believe, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Or is this, as many of the church fathers would put it, my putting on the vestment of charity, of loving God and loving my neighbor, showing that I truly do believe by putting my works where my mouth is. I appreciate what John Calvin in his commentary says at this point, and I actually, actually put it to you in the, as the first quote there by the end, but he basically says, it's not what Jesus is necessarily getting at. He's not trying to distinguish between faith and works, and you can't really, while you can distinguish between them, you can't separate faith and works, so it kind of misses the point. And the reason why I want to say that we're not supposed to ignore the occasion is because I think that's what this man is doing. It's less about the garment, it's less about the, the, the wedding outfit, and more about the fact that he's not acting like he's at a wedding. 
He has forgotten about the occasion. He may be there to enjoy the food. He may be there to enjoy the alcohol. He may be there to enjoy the dancing and the company. But one of the things that he is not there to do is to enjoy a wedding, specifically the wedding of the son of the king. That is, while he has done his perfunctory duty in showing up, he has not shown up to the right occasion. Where are you showing up to? I think this ties in as well with some of the imagery that we see, not only in the Gospels, but throughout the entire Bible. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. After man and woman lost their innocency, what was the first thing that they decided to do? Cover themselves up. And it wasn't enough for the Lord. They had their encounter with the Lord, and he said, you showed up in the wrong clothes. It's time I make some clothes for you. So what does he do? He makes a sacrifice of some animals, and he covers them with the bloody skins. And this idea of needing to be covered, to be presented in the proper attire, it continues in the Old Testament. Aaron, for instance, is clothed in vestments at his ordination, and the prayer in, in Psalm 132 is that the priests would be clothed with righteousness. This contrasts with Israel's nakedness in many of the, many of the stories that the prophets would tell, and it also is refigured when, for instance, the priest Joshua, after the exile, is re-robed in fine priestly garments. The prophecy that God's people will have their garments back. In Jesus' own life, his nakedness on the cross contrasts with his being clothed in glory, as John sees him in the book of Revelation. And speaking of the book of Revelation, what do we see is that those who have been martyred in this life, often bloodied, naked and without any kind of standing or glory they're given a white robe waving palm branches and singing hosanna to the lord so why am i saying all of this the idea here is as paul would say it is that we need to put on the lord jesus christ Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We must put on Christ. The idea is whether you want to call it faith or works, we need to come to Jesus, to receive him, to embrace him, and to accept him entire and whole as he is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that martyr of the 20th century at the hands of the Nazis, his most famous line from his most famous work from the cost of discipleship was that we were fighting against cheap grace, he said. Cheap grace where we tried without repentance. We wanted his righteousness without making it ours. We wanted to have Jesus, but only in part. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when we talk about costly grace, we talk about embracing Jesus not only as our Savior but as our Lord. We talk about embracing Jesus not only because he has been raised from the dead but because we are going to be crucified with him and have to take up our cross and follow him. We're talking about receiving, yes, the fruit of the forgiveness of our sins and of a new life in him, but that new life is going to cost us everything. In other words, we as we approach the kingdom and the feast that it is, we should expect to be transformed because of who Jesus is and because we have received him and everything that he is and everything that he brings. 
And the, this is symbolized and enacted most concretely, perhaps, in the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We come and we receive him, our bridegroom. It is in this sacrament, as we take bread, we drink wine, that as we pray, that our bodies become one with his body. Our souls are united to his soul. We are washed with his blood and fed with his body. We become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. We are his bride and he is the bridegroom. We have a foretaste of the wedding which is yet to come. As he comes and like a bridegroom says, this is my body and I give it to you. And we come and we offer him a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and say, everything that I have and everything that I am is yours just as everything that you are and everything that you have has been given to me. This nuptial feast happens because of his cross and his resurrection, and it is here that we experience the occasion for the feast, which is his life, death, and resurrection. This brings us finally to the third point. The things that we are not supposed to ignore, don't ignore the guest list. We have a host, we have an occasion, but the guest list is growing. After the soft insurrection, the soft coup that almost took place as those unworthy invitees ended up rejecting not only the invitation, but killing the messengers. And after their execution, or perhaps even during their execution, I mean, it takes a while for armies to get the job done. Just ask any of us who are Americans. Sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, we, we see what? We see a new horizon for a social reality. A new horizon of an invitation list. That is, rather than going to these... the landowners, the people who politically would have been expected to support them, he said to his new servants, representing probably the apostles and the early church in this scenario, the instruction is to do what? Is to go out to the highways and to the byways, go out to all along the main roads and find the people that you would last invite to a royal wedding. I mean, we've just had two royal weddings in the last 10 years over in the UK, haven't we? At least, I guess, I mean, I'm just thinking of William and Harry, but I mean, there were, there were a couple others as well. I, I don't, I'm not much of a royal follower myself, but I mean, can you imagine if, if Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II had told her servants to go out to every part of London and bring every single person you can and invite them to my wedding feast? Invite the craziest, most erratic, most unpredictable, the most unworthy people that you can imagine, and I want you to fill my party with these people. Matthew even says it, the good and the bad. Can you imagine a royal person saying, I want to make sure I have a bunch of terrible people at my wedding? Well, this is what he does. This is a social leveling, and I'm not trying to say that this has a political implication for how, say, you know, our city or our, or our province or our country can, should be run. 
you and I can debate that after, after church. But what it does mean is that when it comes to the kingdom to which we are being invited, and when it comes to the feast to which we are being invited, the guest list is radically changed. It has been altered from a hierarchical, stuffy, merit-based guest list to one which is indiscriminate and tasteless. Rich Mullins, the uh, Christian singer, famously said, God has absolutely no taste when it comes to people. For the church at that time, what it most immediately meant was Jew and Gentile. It wasn't just the Jewish people now who are called to the feast, but it was all the nations of the world, just as Isaiah had prophesied. All the nations of the world were being called to this feast, which meant that a bunch of Jewish people were being commissioned to take the good news to a bunch of Greek-speaking people, which would have been anathema to them a short time before. But as God puts it to Peter in his visions, as he is preparing to go to the house of Cornelius, what matters in the end is not how clean or unclean these people are. What matters is not how good or how bad they are. What matters is that my feast is well attended and that my feast is filled up. And I think this speaks to what we sometimes call the apostolic nature of the church. When we recite the Nicene Creed, we, we, we talk about how we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is, the church itself has an apostolic character. We are altogether supposed to be apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, this happens because we do bear the apostles' message. We bear the good news of Jesus Christ, that he who came into the world from his father has died for our sins, has been raised again on the third day, and he is now extending forgiveness of sins and the power of a new life to all before his coming again in glory. But it also means that we as a church have the apostolic nature and mission of Jesus himself. Jesus tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And we have here in the parable the idea that if we ourselves have received that invitation to come to the feast, we are now being turned around and set loose to go proclaim that invitation to others because that invitation is an indiscriminate invitation. That doesn't mean that people can just show up and then live their lives the way they want to. Again, you have to wear the wedding outfit. But the invitation is free, indiscriminate, and available to all. As Hywell Jones, my, my supervisor, in my, uh, during my master's degree put it, the fact is that we have a very inclusive gospel because we have a very exclusive Savior. It is because of who he is and everything that he has done that we now are able to offer inclusively to everyone the offer of eternal life, the offer of the kingdom of heaven, the offer of a feast. You have to come. And once you come, you need to invite your friends. There is a final in-gathering of guests in view, and we have been commissioned. We have become commissioned as his servants, as his deputies, to invite all to this feast. And this is what we are doing in the Lord's Supper. Because the Supper is not just a place where we come and receive Christ. We receive the bread in our hands. We take the cup to our lip. We reflect on what he's done for us. We go back to our seats, and then for the next 13 days, we forget all about it. 
The table is where we receive our commission. The table is where we receive our mandate. Having received Jesus Christ into our heart and into our lives, having received him at this table, we are then commissioned as his ambassadors and sent back out into the world to proclaim his love, to proclaim his message, and to invite others to get to know him as well. We follow Christ by being sent by him to others. And when we receive communion, when we keep his body and blood all to ourselves, when we keep the secret of the feast all to ourselves, when we keep the good news that he has to offer and the kingdom which is drawn near all to ourselves, we aren't partying like we should be. So in conclusion, we do have a present, a present repast, and we're awaiting that future event. I could go on much longer about the Lord's Supper, about the Eucharist, and I've included some quotations from some of the 16th century reformers about the Eucharist, if you want to read some of them. They really kind of tie in with some of the things that I've been talking about, but you do that on your own time. But the Eucharist is preparing us for something which is much greater even than the Eucharist. This is, I think, not to get too polemical or too partisan, but this is where I think we as Protestant Anglicans would disagree with, say, Roman Catholics on the one hand and perhaps others on the other. In the Roman Catholic Church that believes that Christ is so present at the table and on the altar that uh, he actually shows up, transforms the bread and the wine into his body and blood so that there's, no, there's not even any bread and wine left. In some ways, that's, I would suggest, anticipating the final feast too much. That is, it's equating too much of what we should be waiting for to what we already have right now so that there's not really much to wait for. On the other hand, those who say, well, it's only just a symbol of bread and wine, and we don't receive anything else except for a little bit of, a little bit of bread and a little bit of, of juice. Well, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's giving enough credit for how much we actually encounter and experience that nuptial union with Jesus Christ in this life, according to his promise and according to his commandment. So we're stuck between experiencing a foretaste of the feast and the final thing that is yet to come. And I have to admit that when I do cooking, and I do like to cook, um, one of the things that I like to do is roast chickens. And I usually pull the chicken out of the oven and it's got to sit for like 15 minutes, right? After you roast it. And in the meantime, you're getting everything else ready. And you know what happens in my house? All of these little mouths start to show up around the chicken. You know what I mean? They're looking for pieces of the neck and the back that aren't quite ready to cut. And yet they're right there. Can't you just give me a little piece? The funny thing is that my kids, they will actually eat those pieces. When, even when they don't want to eat any of the rest of the chicken, they like those pieces. There's something delightful about waiting for the ultimate consummation of the feast by getting a few of those foretastes, by getting your fingers a little bit greasy and a little bit dirty and enjoying some of those things right now. It's not dinner but it will sustain you until dinner. That is what the supper is offering us. That is what we, as we encourage people to come to Jesus, can remember that we have the fullness of Jesus here, even if it's under a veil, but we are waiting for a much greater experience of everything that he has to offer us and everything that he is going to be 
when he comes again in glory. I want to encourage you in your mission to come to Jesus, to prepare yourself for that day, and to bring others to know him and to meet him as well. Amen.